The invisible don't build great businesses, the unignorable do. Do you want to build a personal brand? Share your unique voice with the world? Welcome to the podcast exploring themes from the book Unignorable by Oliver Oust. In this series, Oliver talks to experts so you too can become unignorable. In this episode, Oliver talks with Dr. Nate Regeer about how to publish successful books and how these have helped him to skyrocket his reputation. Oliver also shares insights from his own experience. Unignorable is a podcast series for all those who want to build a personal brand or simply share their unique voice with the world. I'm very excited about our guest today. His name is Dr. Nate Regeer. He joins us from Kansas today in the United States. He is a clinical psychologist by training, author of multiple books. His latest book has just come out. And we want to talk to him about leadership and communications, his speciality subject, and of course about the process of publishing a book, finding a publisher and getting it out there, making it the bestseller. Helen, Thank you for joining us. You are welcome. It is great to be here, Oliver. We appreciate this and appreciate this opportunity to have a conversation with you. Oh, thank you so much. Let's start at the beginning. You were trained as a clinical psychologist. I believe that's where you received your PhD. And what was your journey from clinical psychology to book author, consultant, CEO, entrepreneur? When I look back, I could probably predict this would have happened. But at the time, I never would have known. I call myself a recovering psychologist <laughs> uh, because I, I trained as a clinical psychologist. I practiced for 11 years right out of school. And I don't think I was ever made for sitting in an office hour after hour, one-on-one -on -one doing therapy with people. I was okay at it, but it, it drove me crazy. I was burning out. And I found myself much more preferring group types of interactions, facilitating Whenever I got a chance to speak about something, I loved that. And so I kind of found my way more into consultation liaison work and then presenting and then training and became really passionate about the, the art and science of interpersonal communication and leadership. And so finally, after 11 years, I had the opportunity to work in a organizational consulting division of the behavioral health organization I was in. And once I got involved in that, there was no turning back and eventually started my own company in, in 2008. It's interesting what you say about basically about energy, that um, we all have certain interactions with people or types of work that either give us energy or drain us of energy. And it seems to me that you found the right profession, the right way of working that gives you energy, right? That is so true. So true. And Early on, I remember people saying, oh, Nate, you're so good at working with kids. You should specialize in kids or you can do this. And I realized, yeah, just because I can doesn't mean it gives me energy. Just because I'm good at it doesn't mean I love it. So that was really hard to choose not to do things I was good at instead to choose to pursue things that gave me passion, gave me joy, where I was energized and I could come back every day and give my full self. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's actually sort of the approach to energy or maximizing for energy is something I only discovered a few months ago for myself. And since then, I sort of double check everything I do and categorize it as either it gives me energy or drains me energy. And obviously trying to avoid the things that drain me of energy and do more things that give me energy. And for instance, I found that talking at people drains me of energy like a webinar but talking with people especially in person gives me a lot of energy yeah the main topic you talk about and the main headline and also of your business is compassion why compassion as a key to leadership and communications it might relate to what you just said about the difference between talking at people and talking with people compassion 
is needed more than ever right now in the world, but it is misunderstood. And Mm -hmm. I really don't think most people practice compassion to its fullest capability. And the word compassion comes from the Latin root, meaning to suffer with or to struggle with calm passion. And so it's this idea of being in it together through the struggle. Right. And that sounds great in theory, but it's really quite sophisticated and quite powerful when you unpack what that really means when it comes to you know, not just helping someone through a tough time or showing empathy or forgiving yourself for making a mistake. What does it really mean to be in the trenches with people day after day after day through the struggle? And so that's been our passion and that's been how we've tried to evolve how that works for leaders. Mm. And, and what does that mean in practice when you go into organizations and help them become more compassionate? Well, good question, because the idea of compassion everybody loves, but the practice of compassion is a whole different thing. And so what, what we realized is for compassion to really take hold in an organization, it has to be very practically understandable. So we have to have a working behavioral definition of it. That way we can measure it. That way we can teach it. And then we can practice and apply it and hold people accountable for it. So it really has to be practical, measurable, teachable, and applicable. You talk about compassion in your books and your latest book, Seeing People Through, has just come out. Do you want to um, elaborate on the ideas in the book? Yeah, the title is very special and very meaningful. We had the title over 10 years ago and we only wrote, started writing the book two years ago. The title came from a fortune cookie at a Chinese restaurant that one of my colleagues was eating at during a grueling two-week remote training. Okay. And she opened up. She was tired. She, she was going to be away from her family all weekend and then have to do it all over again the next week. And she was eating by herself and opened this fortune cookie. And inside the fortune said, the intention is not to see through people. The intention is to see people through. And in that moment, she realized this is why we do what we do, because so many people want to use models and frameworks and tools and strategies to figure people out and see through them and somehow like it's a competition. But the real intention is to use these tools to practice compassion, which is to see people through and struggle with them over time. And for anyone who wants to develop more compassion and maybe inspire co-workers, colleagues, friends to be more compassionate, what would be your top one or two pieces of advice? I would say that I'll just give you our definition of compassion. We define compassion as the practice of demonstrating that everyone is valuable, capable, and responsible in every interaction. And so when you break that down, it's the practice of demonstrating. This means we cultivate the habit and it must be demonstrated through our behaviors. What are we demonstrating? We're demonstrating that you and I are valuable human beings, which means there are no conditions on our okayness as a human being, which leads us to the question of how would I treat you if I believed you were valuable? The second part is capable, which means people can contribute and should be included and have something to offer. What if I engaged with you every day believing that you were capable? And then the third one is responsible, which means that no matter what happened before, what happens next is up to both of us. And so what if I treated you every day as though you were responsible and I was responsible 100% for my feelings, my choices, my behaviors? And then the final part is in every interaction. So it's a very practical behavioral definition. And just that right there is a mindset that can change 
how we approach the next conversation. You're right. I think mindset and motivation come before method and only when the mindset is right, the right method can take root. Mm. I mean, that, that's a fantastic message. And I know you're working very hard to get the message out. You've written three books and you uh, put yourself out there uh, building your brand, but mostly in order to spread the message. So what have you done to make sure as many people understand and hear about the compassion method and mindset? Wow, this is... This is a tough one. A couple things. One of them is write more books. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that can have a multiplying effect. And so just continuing to put down what we want to say and how it can help people. Each book builds momentum for the next one. So that's important. Also, crafting a message that's easy to understand. I think so often people put out stuff that is powerful. It's amazing. But it's too complex, too theoretical, or too ethereal for people to really practically apply. And so yeah. it takes a lot of work to make things simple, kind of like Occam's razor. You know, one of the things I think that makes an idea or a concept unignorable is that it is in its simplest form. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just intuitively practical. Um, so that's important. But then it's the usual stuff of, you know, getting on podcasts. We do a lot of social media and I write, write, write any publication or outlet that will let me talk about this and how it applies to a particular industry or challenge or problem. I'll do it. So I spend a lot of time writing. Uh, I publish a weekly blog. And then one of our mission or st strategic visions for Next Element is to partner with other entities who can amplify the message of compassion. So just us having this conversation doubles or triples the audience that could potentially hear us. That is one more way to get our voice out there. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I found the same thing while writing the books. Uh, I've written the few so far, but also unignorable that it really forces you to shape your ideas and simplify them and make them really practical and, and useful. Would you say that writing books was the, the cornerstone to getting the word out? Because that's what generates the interest from podcast publication. I would just? say writing books got the word out beyond our immediate audience. Because, you know, we all have tribes. We all have those groups of people that, that are so interested in whatever's next from us. And, and we're in a way, we're talking to them all the time. But a book can transcend that. Uh, it puts it all in one spot, and it doesn't rely on the voice of the writer anymore. Mm -hmm. It's all right there. And so I think that was really important to get it out there and really important to get it with a publisher to add some credibility, add some machinery behind it to get it out there and get it distributed. Yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting debate among authors, isn't it? Uh, whether you should go through book agent and traditional publisher or whether you should self-publish. If most of the book sales are done online, you know, what is the added value? What do you think is the added value, you know, when books are on Amazon anyway, regardless yeah. of who writes or publishes them? Yeah, and I would, uh, if I were to weigh in on that argument, I would totally support self-publishing because it's such an amazing thing to write a book and put it out there. And, you know, it's like giving birth and anyone who has that dream should give it a go. There's so many very successful authors that are self-published. For me, I self-published my first book and the second book we self-published, and then it was picked up by a publisher at a trade show. And for me, there was there was a certain credibility, but instantly now I had some accountability and some structure mm -hmm. from an entity that kind of understood how the business works. Uh, and then for my third book, Seeing People Through, we actually together built 
the structure, the flow, the framework, the number of pages, everything was built together with the publisher so that it could be in a way that would be most accessible according to kind of best practices. So I found that support very helpful. That was just for me, Hmm. what I enjoyed about it. Yeah. I would say any people, anyone that's looking for a publisher, don't count on the publisher to promote your market, your book though. That's not what they do. They publish and they distribute, but it's still up to the author to do the promotion. Yeah, yeah. I heard that from a number of authors. It's quite interesting because the you know traditional view of a publishing house would be that they they put it out and they spread the word about it. But maybe that was the case in earlier in earlier times. Yeah, or maybe with a massive publishing house that everybody looks to the next New York Times bestseller they're going to put in the airports. Yeah, uh, but that's not the most of us. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's probably you know a couple of publishing house per year. I know. What, what has been the process for you of writing the book? Did you have a big idea, the vision, uh, and then sort of conceptualize the the chapters, or was it sort of putting the pieces together, joining the dots? Well. It was a very organic process. The book was mostly written in theory before I started writing because I've been blogging for eight or nine years. I have almost 400 blog posts out there. And one of the things I try to do in every blog post is distill what we would call a behavioral kernel or a nugget. What is one concept or behavior that will make a difference right now that somebody could apply within 300 words of reading it. So that's in my challenge. And so I've been applying the concepts in this book to leadership in these small, tiny nuggets for years. And so when I started writing the book, I went and looked at all of my blog posts around this topic and which ones got the greatest amount of energy and the greatest Mm -hmm. amount of, of traction online. And that pretty much became the framework for the book. Yeah, we were testing the concepts out there in public for probably six or seven years before the book started being written. Yeah. And do you go to Hut in the Woods for a month or do you write an hour every day or how do you get it done? Because I know it's such uh, such a I know. I conceiving process. I can write on command. If I'd say I'm going to spend four hours this morning writing, I can do that. I, can't, I don't really like need a muse or anything. However, um, I did some writing. We have a house in Colorado in the mountains where I can it's an amazingly peaceful place where my brain just flows and I can write there. But I would say 90% of my writing happened in local coffee shops. I, I do really great work around lots of people when I'm not interacting with them. Yeah. So there was a coffee shop, there was my spot, they knew what I wanted and they would keep me, keep me going with caffeine for three to four hours, you know, maybe <laughs> twice a week. And that was my spot. Mm-hmm. How has your career changed since you published those the books and in particular the, the latest one, Seeing People Through? I wouldn't say the latest book has changed my career yet, but I do believe there's an inflection point coming. It's given me more credibility for speaking engagements. I love public speaking. I love doing keynote presentations. I love headlining conferences and mm. things. And this has given me, I think, more credibility to yeah. do that. And also by writing the book... I really have to hone the messaging and how I talk about things so it's accessible and it's and it's succinct. And that's important for, for public speaking. Um, but I do think in the, the process communication model, which is behind the scenes in this book, has been percolating for over 40 years around the world, but it has not broken through yet like some of the more famous models of individual differences in communication and personality. And I'm hoping this book might be an inflection point where it 
goes mainstream. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And do do you think, um, or, or have you, in your experience, have you seen sort of a silver bullet when it comes to book publishing to make it successful and get the word out? Or is it really, you know, going on a couple of podcasts every week and sort of steady um, speaking to various audiences about it and it just all adds up over time? I don't think there's a silver bullet. Mm. Once in a while we hear of, you know, these books that just out of nowhere went viral and went crazy. Yeah. Um, completely due to how sticky the content was. But most often, I think the majority, it's just time and effort and, and speaking and mm-hmm. writing and just, it's it's hard, hard, hard work. You know, I used to think sales was about persuading someone in 15 minutes to buy something. And I've learned sales is about relationships that take years and years and years of nurturing. Yeah. And, and I think this it's the same with books. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, I, I also haven't found a silver bullet. And, I, you know, I also don't think there is one. Um, it is really just uh, building the audience, talking to a lot of people over time, building relationships, putting putting out good content and great content yeah. over a long period of time. I think that there's probably no shortcut uh, except for lucky you do, do you think more people should write books or who should write books to you know help enhance their career their um you know their standing their credibility that's a great question um and i'd love to i, I have some ideas i'd love to hear from you also about like why you wrote your books because mm-hmm. i've i'm surprised how many authors have contacted me and said, Hey, what was your process like? You know, just talk to me about it. And I often ask them, you know, what is your motive for writing the book? What do you want to accomplish? And you know, for some it's, I want credibility for some it's, I just need to force myself to consolidate my thinking. And it's just for me, or, you know, I always said I was going to write a book. And so I just need to do this for me. And that's a completely legitimate reason as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think everybody's, every author is different and every reason is okay. Um, to do it. I'm curious for you how you'd answer your own question on that. <laughs> uh, to be honest, uh, it started when I was probably eight years old. I always liked books. I, I read very early and my father brought me a typewriter when I was a kid and I just started sort of publishing <laughs> when I was yeah. a sort of my own newspaper in my bedroom, that sort of thing. So I think it was always in the back of my mind that one day I want to see my name on book covers for whatever reason. So, mm. And I found a way now, both process-wise, with a team, with sort of recording uh, a lot of the content rather just, you know, starting to write content, but also recording mm. it and then turning it into writing. Um, and, and, and also, um, you know, as, as you said, it lends to credibility and enhances the standing in the community. And so it is both useful, but also something always dreamt about doing it. I just had to do at some point until I had the process right. I started a few over the years, started a few writing a few books, but I thought you just have to sort of knuckle down and discipline and sit down and write a book. And if you have a busy life and a busy job, it just didn't work for me. And I'm probably too, uh, you know, too, too excitable or too many things to <laughs> for a month. Um, yeah. so what, what happened is that I, I found a good process together with a team to, to use a lot of audio and use the podcasting just as you use your blog posts uh, as inspiration. And then the honing, and sharpening of the message, I also think that's that's such a benefit. When I sometimes see myself on a video or on a podcast and you think, yeah, that, that's a good idea, I write it down. And then you look at it after a couple of days and you think, it's not sharp enough, it's not quite there, there's something missing, it's not coherent. Mm. And you really force yourself to make it coherent and make it sharp and make it, uh, as you say, sticky and memorable. So I found so many advantages in this and, and also... Um, you know, I could spend my time putting out of social media content every day, for instance, but, but right. I always thought it makes more sense to create something that lasts. 
Um, and, you know, yes, I'm on social media, I do the videos and podcasts I love, but to me, a book is something that lasts and is also in a, in a different category from, uh, you know, LinkedIn mm -hmm. posts. Mm -hmm. For all these reasons, I'm, I'm enjoying the process. I think I'm getting better at it. So last year was really about figuring out the process and improving that. And this year, it's also about the marketing side of things in order to make sure that more people find the book, not just being a sort of a good business card for content, right. but also, you know, it, it finds its audience. And that's really the objective for this one, to obviously improve on the writing, but also to, uh, you know, be better at the marketing side so that, that it increases its visibility. I am so I keep thinking about what you said in the beginning about energy and passion. And one of the things that I realized is that my personality has two competing things going on. I I love ideas and playing with ideas and extrapolating ideas and concepts. But I also am very, very much about practical action. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, writing puts together my two passions, which is how succinctly can I articulate a concept so that somebody can do something valuable with it? And, you know, every blog I write next, my next week's blog has 13 words in it mm -hmm. and it's the shortest one I've ever written. And I was so proud to be able to s articulate something that's actionable in 13 words. Um, and so I guess I, I keep resonating with what you said about, about that passion. Yeah. Who, who inspires you? Who gives you passion? One of my, I get a lot of passion from the way people respond to stuff. Like when someone says, oh, I never thought of it that way. Or, you know, here's what I did with your idea. And it's something I never even thought of. That inspires me. Also, there's, you know, I read a lot and I get inspired a lot by just other ways other people have articulated things. One of my favorite bloggers is Seth Godin. I read him every day and he's, he's kind of a role model for me about how to articulate things cleverly. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. The, the name Seth Godin came to my mind as well when you said 30 words, because he's really good yeah. at uh, oh you know, making a point very succinctly. And you, you actually want to read his newsletters because you know, he's not uh, driveling on for pages. <laughs> it's just, yeah, 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 yeah. you get something valuable out of it. It's, it's such a brain teaser. Mm-hmm. Now, um, who should read your book? So who have you written the book for? And you should therefore check it out. Yeah. Well, obviously it's for people who teach and train and coach the process communication model for leaders. Mm -hmm. But that's a very small group. So this is for two groups of leaders. First of all, for le newly emerging leaders in today's world who know and realize that interaction skills, people skills communication skills are absolutely the prime differentiator. And this book will fast track a leader's competencies in that area. The second group is leaders that want to go from good to great. And this is people who have been good leaders, but the world is changing and we have to upgrade and we have to become more sophisticated every day. And now we're dealing with so much more diversity, um, virtual communication, conflict, um, so many different perspectives and the need to bring teams and groups together to get creative and solve big problems. So for those leaders, this book is going to invite them to dive deep inside and do some renovation work, some deep renovation work so that they can become much more agile and much more effective, um, in today's world. You know, I was, I was, I was talking to somebody recently about how, wow, everything's probably going to get automated now because we're learning we just don't need people. And he said, no, no, no. He said, anything that has happened before and can be repeated will be automated and a machine will do it. 
But what you can never replace is that humans will always create the future. And they can only do that, though, in the right kind of environment, in the right kind of context. And this book will help leaders create that context. It's fascinating. I love the term prime differentiator. And the the expression I've used uh, in the past is hard skills. So communications, reputation building, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Those are hard skills now because, as you know, traditionally those have often been described as softer skills. Precisely the reason that AI and, and technology will take away all those sort of repetitive jobs uh, and, and, and tasks, um, that it will be, you know, as you said, a prime differentiator. Could you elaborate a little bit on that concept? Yeah. D- does it resonate with uh, leaders and organizations? Do they understand this in your experience? It does. And actually, it was Seth Godin at the International Talent Development Conference last year that said, stop calling them soft skills. They're real skills. And they're the most important real skills. Um, the reason they're the prime differentiator is because leaders spend most of their, when they're not being effective, most of it is caused by miscommunication. Mm-hmm. Um, intentions that didn't come across right, um, nonverbals that caused static in the system, or egos that are battling because of two different personality types trying to get what they want, or misconstruing why something is happening and not realizing what's really going on. And most importantly, negative attention. Everybody needs to be seen in some way as a human being. And when we're not seen and not recognized in the way that feeds us positively, humans will go after getting attention negatively. It's in our nature. It's survival. So negative attention and miscommunication are the most costly static in the system. Um, for leaders. And if, if leaders have the sophisticated skills to be able to recognize that, turn it around and preempt it, um, they can make a contribution and have a ripple effect in a culture that is, that is massive. That's why it's the prime differentiator. Interesting. And uh, I think there's, there's a bit of a cultural difference between Europe and the U S and, um, my, my limited understanding of, um, sort of the difference and, and um, you know, I've worked for big U.S. company and, and uh, obviously work with American clients, but it seems to be that American businessmen and leaders do understand the importance of communication skills way better than Europeans, especially in the European continents. The, the, um, the U.K. is a bit of a, you know, sort of halfway, I would say, but it's better understood in London, certainly, than in Berlin or, or Paris. Mm-hmm. Have you come across this as well, the sort of cultural differences and uh, leaders' approach to communications? Yes, we have. Definitely cultural differences in how how they see the value of communication and then the culture and how it influences communication. And so those are two different things. And we do a lot of work here with medical uh, with medical providers. And one of the most common challenges that we get called in for is a foreign physician who's working in the U.S. and is having struggles communicating and cultural differences, but very much different upbringings and standards of what communication looks like and how much it matters. And so we do a lot of interpersonal communication training with people that have moved to the United States and practice medicine because that miscommunication is so costly to patient satisfaction, to patient outcomes, to rapport within the team. And so we see that a lot, but I also travel around the world, or I used to, uh, doing master classes in the process communication model. So I, I get to experience how people are seeing communication in many, many cultures. And 
beneath the surface, I think everybody wants to be able to connect better, wants to be able to leverage diversity, and wants to be able to be more effective as a leader. Hmm, interesting. And just to concur and, and a slightly different angle to that is that often leaders spend a lot of time developing <clears throat> strategies and trying to get results, right? And leaders focus yeah. on getting results, but quickly realize they can't get results by themselves. They can only come up with the, you know, with the leadership and the strategy and the direction and the speed of travel. And then they have to use communication tool to take everyone with them. Otherwise, their strategy will go nowhere. And yep. same is true for culture, I think, in, in yep. organizations. And that's, uh, that's still an under, uh, undervalued. I think everyone's talking about it. Everyone pretends to take it seriously. But the idea that you can just impose a culture and write down a few things on a message board or a poster and then <laughs> expect everyone to, oh, okay, this is our culture. Uh, maybe, um, you know, uh, that, that yeah. gimmicks to come along with that. But um, th how do you actually uh, ensure that you have a compassionate, positive culture in an organization? I think at one, in your book, you mentioned the 87% um, of employees are not engaged, which right. is a shocking number. I mean, this is uh, just ridiculous when you think about it. But this is probably one of the reasons I would think. Yeah. And that's, that's not just in the US. That's a that's a global, yeah. globally they're not engaged. And there's lots of reasons for it. But one of the things that when we work with kind of mid to older leaders, they they still kind of often have this old mindset that, well, you should be lucky to have a job. We don't need to do anything else. You're getting paid. <laughs> and the the I think the major shift that's happened is the employee is the customer now. Mm -hmm. And the employees, the customer, because they have options, they can work virtually. There are many, many millennials and younger generations are willing to take less pay to have more satisfaction and more flexibility. So some of those old levers of kind of loyalty and, and that kind of thing no longer are effective. And so what we have left is interpersonal relationships are, again, the prime differentiator in keeping people, keeping them engaged getting their maximum um, discretionary energy every day. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You mentioned the process communication model, and maybe for those who are not familiar with it, could you um, allude to what it means and maybe also what the differences are between PCM and yeah. uh, sort of more personality type assessments? Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, Pro PCM stands for process communication model, and as far as I know, it's the only model of communication based on observable behavior. It was developed over 40 years ago and tested at NASA um, because it is, a, it is a mathematically derived model of human behavior by watching second by second how people say what they say, not what they say, but how they do it, the process of communication versus the content. And it was discovered that there are six distinct observable, sequential, and predictable patterns of behavior. And we all have all six within us in a preferred set order that is that is set by about age seven, and that's personality structure. But what makes PCM such a unique model is, first of all, it's based on communication because the activity of relationships is communication. Um, most models teach the theory of individual differences or a conceptual label, but they don't teach you what to do next. Mm -hmm. um, also, PCM is about types in people, not types of people. And this is profound in an era of inclusion because 
If I have all six types in me and so do you, that means within me is the capability of appreciating and communicating and honoring you. It's not like it's out there somewhere. And so this whole idea of othering and labeling goes away when we realize that it's in us and it's not um, out there. And then finally, the other main distinguishing feature of PCM compared to other models is it, it ties together very clearly and cleanly the relationship between positive, healthy motivation and psychological needs and the negative attention behaviors that sabotage us that we go after when we're not getting our needs met. So it's a really clean, like two sides of a coin, which is a game changer for any leader that can see what's happening and be able to reverse that instead of getting sucked in. Um, and so it's been going, like I said, percolating for 40 years. It was tested at NASA. It's been used by a, a president. It's, there's two PCM trainers at Pixar Animation Studios that use it for character development. It's one of the largest uh, leadership development programs in France, and, and it's all over Europe. Um, so I'm just very excited for it to go mainstream. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, I had to smile when you talked about the personality tests and, and, and uh you know the idea that someone is a type three or an AB, or yeah. it's just uh, it just seems very old-fashioned. As you say, just putting labels on people is is usually not constructive. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and so often these tools have been used as weapons, and that's yeah. the the opening story in the book talks about a young a young woman who's going into the workforce, and she has a really negative experience that many people have had about a personality tool being used you know, to build culture, but it, it is abused because people label each other. They hide behind the labels. There's no follow-up. Nobody is actually taught what to do about it. So it ends up becoming a prop, you know, it's worse than before they did it. Um, and so I just think we need to move beyond that and give practical communication tools for people to actually act on the differences, uh, and leverage those differences. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Before I let you go, I would love to ask you for your um, sort of top advice for anyone listening, how to get a book, book published. I would say how to, be, anyone can publish a book, um, but I would say mm -hmm. dig deep into what you're passionate about and think about a problem you want to solve in the world and then write about that and make it as simple as possible so that when somebody reads it, they can go solve a problem in their life that you, that you saw and you solved. Um, and, and I think also one of the things that I, I'm more passionate about is when a book can make the reader, the hero in their own story, um, not make the writer, the hero. And so we've tried to write a book where when I read the book, I feel better. I feel like I've become the hero in my story mm -hmm. now by using the solution that you gave me. Um, so that, that would be my advice is write about what you're passionate about and solve a real problem. Unless you're writing, you know, just fiction for entertainment and that's fine too. Yeah. And how do you, or how did you get, or what would be advice in terms of finding a publisher, finding an aid or going through an agent or just approaching publishers? I wish I had better advice for, for everyone. What I can say is that we put ourselves out there. We went to a, a big international trade show. We had a booth, a prominent booth, and we had the book everywhere. Mm 
And so it attracted the eye of a publisher that came and said, this is really compelling. I want to talk more. And within two weeks, we had a contract. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to put yourself out there if you if you want to get picked up by a publisher. Yeah, yeah. almost have an audience ready-made that they can tap into. Makes sense. Yeah, and, and authors, most publishers rely on their authors to bring new authors to them. Mm-hmm. So I've probably brought five or six concepts from friends of mine and connections of mine to my publisher, and two of them have turned into books. Interesting, yeah. I've also spoke to a few friends I know who've published books through publishers, and um, my my idea at the back of my mind is still to uh, use Unignorable and maybe um, approach a publisher for a German version maybe next year or so. Uh, but if anyone wants to pick it up in English, that's fine for me too. I just I was so impatient, or I am impatient to get things out and get the word out, and yeah. that's why I've chosen this route. But but as you with your second book, there, there may be a sort of a second life and a second option, uh, potentially my my native country as well, um, because I think it would be good for the German market as well. Well, I think. I- unignorable is unignorable because today everyone is clamoring for attention and to be unignorable is becoming harder and harder and harder so i I think it's a compelling concept thank you and so is your book uh which is called seeing people through the latest book came out uh, a few weeks ago by dr nate regeer nate thank you so much for chatting to us uh from kansas all the best and uh, i hope we stay in touch with this really enlightening conversation and i really appreciate your time and your your patience talking to us about your ideas and your books it's been a pleasure thank you so much thank you now everyone has what it takes to be unignorable the only thing left to do is to start Thank you for listening, and I hope you check out the other episodes as well. Thank you, Nate. Goodbye. Find out more at oliveraust.com.